uh, we looked last week at chapters 3 and 4 about the rebuilding of the wall. And we got to verse 6, excuse me, two weeks ago. And uh, in verse 6 we finished with, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. They had a desire to work. They had a desire to rebuild the walls of uh, Jerusalem for safety and for security. And we looked uh, two weeks ago about uh, the rebuilding of the wall. We looked about the uh, opposition that would come. Um, But tonight I really want you to continue this thought because we talked about how do we rebuild the areas of our life that have been destroyed? Or how do we rebuild the areas of our life that have um, been neglected? Because all of us can have that, right? We can have a marriage that we wake up one day and we realize we've not put the time and effort into it and things are much worse than we can imagine. In our own lives, we can get take for granted the reading and studying of God's Word and we wake up one day and that foundation that we have is crumbling. And so when we get to verse 6, we see that they are building the wall, they're working, uh, but it happens in verse 7. And tonight I really want you to hear this because when God begins to work in your life and begins to show you areas of your life that you need to let Him be in control of, or those areas of your life that have, have never been important to you, but God is trying to work in your life, you should expect opposition. You should expect opposition. And so if you're taking notes, you can write that down. But it starts in verse 7. It says, Now it happened. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. If you remember two weeks ago, we looked that they were mocking them. They were uh, making fun of them. And if you remember from our Sunday sermon, uh, later on after the city is... is uh, excuse me. As you remember when David was taking the city back in Second uh, Samuel, they were mocking him, right? You, you can't take the city... And now Nehemiah's enemies are saying, well, you can't rebuild the city. But what we see is the same thing is opposition to what God would have you to do. And tonight, if you want to try to restore your marriage, you should expect opposition. If you and I should realize that our community is full of lost people and brokenness, and we have a desire to be a church that reaches into the community, we should expect what? Opposition. Uh, Most churches are running 15, 20, 25 people. Those same 25 people have been there since since the church was established. Uh, No one's being saved. Nothing's being done. And they don't face much opposition. But if you are trying to be a part, even at work, if you keep your faith quiet and don't talk about it and just Joel Osteen people to death, you'll have very little problems. But you try to tell someone about sin or their need for Jesus, or that they are living a way that is contrary to God's Word, you will never be opposed, right? Everybody will be very thankful that you told them. I would appreciate if you wouldn't use that kind of language at work. Or they would really appreciate if you said, you know what, I would really appreciate if you wouldn't tell dirty dirty jokes while we're at the break table. 
That, that's really, those are well-embraced ideas, right? A lot of you have ever worked with anybody outside of church, right? You will face opposition. Same thing if you try to get your finances in order and manage your money God's way. You try to be the husband, you name it. When you begin to try to rebuild what has been tore down in your life or has never been given any attention by you, you should expect opposition. Any thoughts, any, uh, any examples of that that you have seen in your own life? All right. So, tonight I really hope that you will know that opposition is going to come. But the second thing I want to show you is how do you respond to opposition? How do you respond when that comes? Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God, and because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Now, I think this is a wonderful verse about how we are to live our Christian faith. We are to pray, we are to give it to God, we're to do what we're told, and trust that the Lord will produce the results. Literally, they prayed to our God, but they also did what? They also set watchmen on the wall to warn them if the enemy comes. Now, some of us would say, and you'd hear people say, well, there was no need to put watchmen, they prayed about it. Well, that's like saying there's no reason to have police because we prayed that God would protect us. That doesn't make sense. And other people would say, well, there's no need to pray about it because we'll just take care of everything. We'll do it. But we see here they prayed, they gave it to God, and they did what they were told. And so in our life, we pray that God would work in the hearts of people. But then it's our job to go and preach the gospel. It's God's job to draw. It's God's job to save. It's God's job to convict. But it's our job to pray and to go. As a husband, it's the same thing. I pray for my wife. I, I pray that God would, would take care of her and help her. But I also have to be involved in our marriage. I have to commit to being the husband that God wants me to be. And so that could be in every area of our life. How many of us have ever seen a little kid and a set of parents when the kid is little is really, really mouthy? And the parents are like, oh, isn't that so funny? Isn't that just so funny? They mouthed off their mother or said some word that they should. It's just so cute, right? And then about 10 years later, when they get to be about 14 years old, they're using that same language and that same attitude, and guess what it is? It's not funny, right? See, you can pray for your children, and you should pray for your children, but the Bible also tells you that whose responsibility is to put into action the principles that God has given us as parents? We are. It's our job to have family to Bible studies. It's our job to have family prayer time. It's our job to teach our kids how to give and how to serve and how to do all these things. You can pray for them, and you should, trusting that God is going to work and move in their lives, but yet you and I have to do what God has asked us to do. It's kind of like when people will say, well, if we'll just pray about it, God will answer it. You're absolutely right. I believe sometimes it's no, sometimes it's wait, sometimes it's yes. But what I have found is many times God uses what he's already given us. Boy, I tell you what, we just need more money. That's what I hear churches say all the time. We just need more money. We just need more money. We just need more money. I said, pray about it and tell your people to give. 
Because there's more money on Baptist pews than goes, that goes in the plate. God's already given you what you need. Or you say, well, we need volunteers and we need servants and we need workers. Well, pray and then train, right? We are to go forth and make disciples. And so we can pray that God would save people. We can pray that God would raise people up. But once God saves them and brings them to us, who is responsibility for investing the time and effort into them? We are. And so I ask that question. When was the last time you discipled somebody? When was the last time you went out of your way to find a new Christian or someone who was coming back to the faith and say, I would love to spend some time with you and help you in your walk with the Lord? You don't have to answer that, but just think about it. If we really do want God to save people and to send them, we have to be willing to do what? Our part when God brings them here. How about we always want new people, right? I hear that all the time. We just need new people in our church. We just need God to send new people. What do you think the number one problem when God sends new people to a church is? Churches are just way too friendly, aren't they? Oh, man, they just make people feel so welcome, so invited. It, it just scares them away. You think that's what we hear most of the time? Come on, someone's got to answer that at least. No. You know what people usually say? What's the tall driver's head teacher when I was in school? That's the guy that introduced himself when I came here. I'm like, ah, that's Brzezinski. Yeah, that's him. But even we have been known not to be very... Huh? No, <laughs> no that's not true. But literally, if God is going to send them, we should make them feel like we're glad they're here. We should make them feel like we're thankful that God sent them to us. And so I just think this is a really amazing verse just to think about in our walk with the Lord. Of We're to take it to the Lord. We're to trust Him with it. But yet that does not excuse us from being obedient to what His Word has said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And they did well, didn't they? Maybe take a nap. And they took a nap and then they left the garden and Peter didn't, did he? Fell right into it. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's kind of like the Bible clearly teaches that God is gracious and merciful and willing to forgive. But I've also heard people say, well, I'll just go ahead and do it because it's easier to ask for forgiveness than... Permission. And that is nowhere in Scripture. I hope you know that. That's only with the wife, right. The Apostle Paul even said, if grace is abound, sin shouldn't abound more. We don't sin more just to enjoy the grace of God more. That's not how we live our Christian faith. We know that we are saved by grace and that we walk by faith. But when we do stumble and struggle, we know that if we'll ask for forgiveness, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness and sins. And so we see that especially in Nehemiah's life and in rebuilding the city, but it is absolutely applicable in our life as well. So they prayed and they planned. Next thing I want to show you from this tonight that I think you can take for your life and for 
our lives in, in together is when opposition comes, we can pray and we can prepare, but that doesn't mean that we don't lose heart. Sometimes we think, well, once I get saved and once I give it to God, I won't grow weary. And that is not true. Listen to what it says in verse 10. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, for whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Now, if you are aware or not, I had the pictures earlier, that when Israel had been destroyed, when Jerusalem had been destroyed, where they were rebuilding the walls was not in the same place. They did not go down into the valley like the original city did. They had built it up on the hill. But when Jerusalem was destroyed, they did not come along behind and clean up all the mess. Right? The, the Assyrians and Babylonians and all the people who had, had ransacked Israel over the years did not clean up after themselves. They came in, took what they wanted, destroyed it, and what? Left. It's like our house, right? Our kids come in, destroy everything, and then they go outside. They have no desire to clean up after them. And so I have to go drag them back inside. It literally looks like what? A bomb went off. But you have to think that Jerusalem was, they were under siege, they were under attack, there was rubble, destruction, it was just a mess. And what they're saying is, as we're trying to rebuild, the mess that was left over is in the way. And I don't want you to miss this tonight. Because the, the hardest thing about letting God work in your life, especially the areas that were the most damaged, is the baggage that keeps hanging around, right? You can give your life to the Lord, turn your life around, but I can promise you someone is going to bring up what at some point? Your past, your failures, your mistakes. And so no matter how hard you try, there is always some of that rubbish that is left. There are scars from the struggles you've been through. And so tonight they were growing weary because they were not only rebuilding, but they were having to move things and clean things and prepare things to rebuild. And so it's why you always say it's easier to just start new, right? It's easier to just build a new place, start from scratch, than to rebuild and restore an old building. Because when you work in an old building, once you start, it, what? It seems like it never stops. I'm going to replace this one outlet you tear the wall out and you realize that the electric all the way from that outlet to the box is bad. And you get that fixed and you get to the box and you realize that the box is bad. And then you realize, okay, hey, well that is intertwined in the wrong place. It wasn't built the right way. Man, the plumbing's bad. Man, the, the, the sink won't. It's it just a constant, right? You're repairing things, but you're never fixing it. And so you start with a new house, a new slate, and it's just, it's all brand new. There's nothing to work around. And that's what the nation of Israel is dealing with here. I always tell kids, the greatest testimony is not just by those who lived in a tavern, beat their wife, and was on drugs, and God saved them and brought them back. That's a wonderful testimony. But it is just as wonderful as a testimony 
to give your life to the Lord in vacation Bible school at eight years old and know that you were saved, to live out your Christian faith in junior high and in high school, to marry someone and date someone who loves God just as much as you do, that is just a wonderful testimony as the other. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't, I don't know about anybody else, but I struggle with self-righteousness all the time, <laughs> no matter what it is. Yeah. I heard Albert Moeller uh, was talking today about when they elected him the president of Southern Seminary. He said, I didn't have anything to do with it, but I'm arrogant enough to know that if I did, I would have appointed myself. And so uh, <laughs> that's how we are, right? But that is still a testimony to what God can do in someone's life. And there are struggles with that, just like Dave said, self-righteousness. But I don't, I'm not going to lie to you. I do not want my testimony of my kids to be, we were raised in church, we were saved as kids, we knew better, but. That is not what I want their testimony to be. I want their testimony to be like their moms. I had a three-month rebellion streak where I didn't go home on time. Oh, that's just really burning up the roads there, woman. Three months, man, I bet you just really have a guilt problem. No. But it is amazing, and most of you have lived long enough to know this, the damage that sin causes that stays with you. The eternal consequences are gone, thankfully. But the earthly rubbish never completely goes away. And so you think you can, you've overcome something, you've, you figure you've got victory over something, and here it comes. And so tonight I really want you to think that, because it says right there, the strength of the laborers is failing. Um, literally, when you read, my Bible I've got the study, the uh, notes say, literally dust, the term refers to the rubble or ruins of the prior destruction in 586 B.C., which they had to clear away before they could make significant progress on the rebuilding of the walls. So literally you're doing twice the amount of work for half the effort, for half the results, right? The wall was already there. And so I just really want you to think about that because no matter, especially as you were rebuilding relationships, that rubbish is not just on your end, it's on the other people as well. Absolutely. You are correct. But yet, we still have to believe that God can rebuild. I think this is significant here because even though they had to rebuild and move the rubbish that was there, um, some of the wall was still usable. And so as you see here that they were building part of it up, we should also be thankful for the foundation that we do have. We should be thankful for the foundation we do have. And so parents and grandparents, what I can give you as a word of advice is build a solid foundation. Build a marriage that's based on a solid foundation. Build a testimony that's based on a solid foundation. I met with a person this week. We were talking about salvation and grandkids and my kids being saved and about the ages and that whole discussion about when's too young and what do you, you know, and that whole awful, that just that causes you to stay up at night. And the response was, well, I know my kids are, my grandkids are ready to be baptized. And I said, well, I'm not talking about baptism. I'm talking about being saved. Baptism is a whole other thing. Well, Jake, we believe differently than you do. You know, we just got to get them baptized. That is the key. 
And in that moment, I thought, Jake, just let it, leave it alone. Right? It's not worth it. It's, you're not going to change their mind. Just, just avoid this whole discussion, right? Just avoid it. And you know what I did. I'm like, well, that's not biblical. And that's not right. And the three verses that you take to use that, that's twisting it. All right? John chapter 3, the book of Acts, you're twisting them. And, uh, and as you can imagine, it went over so well. They agree with me totally now, completely, and will be here Sunday. And that is all facetious. That is not true. But why? Even if you build a foundation that is not solid, it is almost impossible to change it. You and I have argued with people and tried to talk to people about what you believe and why you believe. And someone who was raised in a church that believes something contrary to the Word of God are some of the most stubborn people you will ever try to reach. Literally. Because why? The foundation that was laid for them in their mind is unshakable. That's why God has to reveal it. That's why God has to tell them what is needed. Thoughts, questions, discussion, disagreement. Boy, I'm knocking it out of the park tonight. Um, so as they begin to lose heart, as they begin to wear out, as all of us do, the longer we serve the Lord, especially if it's difficult, he goes in verse 13 and he gives them a plan. It says, therefore, I position men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. I want to just take a few minutes and look here in verse 14. He starts by talking to the leader of the peoples, the nobles. He begins talking to the leaders, the people that would not necessarily be nobles, but would be people of influence. And then he speaks to the whole group of the people. You see, he knew something just like Moses' father-in-law knew, that if you will divvy up some of the work to some people, and then you can divvy up some of the work to more people then you can do more. And Nehemiah realized something, that if you influence influencers, then they can influence others. I have pastored long enough to know that every time someone has a question, they do not call me. They have usually talked to five other people before they talk to me. And sometimes those people have done a great service and sometimes a great disservice. I was having lunch today with someone and he said, we were talking about that. He said, someone called me and asked about so-and-so and what happened with so-and-so. And, and I told him what I knew about so-and-so. And I was like, well, did you just tell him to call Jake? He said, I absolutely did. And I said, what did they say? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is. But you need to know that you influence other people. You are going to be the major influence in your children's life if you are being the parent that you want, that God wants you to be. And you should want that. You ought to be an influencer at work. You ought to be an influencer at church. And the reason is some people influence because of the title they're given. But I think most of us recognize that influence is not given by a title. We respect people with titles sometimes, 
but influence is given to the people that we trust, the people that have made a difference in our lives. And so he goes to these people and he gives them this message. Do not be afraid of them. A simple principle in its understanding, a very difficult principle in applying. The Bible says, do not fear, fear not, over and over and over again. But yet all of us struggle with fear. We fear different things. As a Christian, I do not fear death. I don't. I'm not ready to go just right now, but some days I'm ready to go more than others. I know. I believe the promises that God said that absent from the body is present with the Lord. My greater fear is the influence that this world has on my children. That's what causes me the most fear. Why? Just because. I'm stubborn. I know what I believe. I know why I believe it. And I don't care if you like it or not. Just the way it was. And it is. Them, they are moldable, shapeable. And as parents, it's our job to train them. You might fear a doctor visit that's coming up. You might fear what's going to happen in the stock market. If you're like me, I'm terrified of what the guy in the White House is going to do next. Terrified. Not because I think it's going to be good either. Not because of what it's going to do for me, but just the ramifications it's going to have. I would much rather live in a nation of blessing than judgment. But I just don't see how much longer God can continue to bless a nation that hates Him as much as ours does. But it doesn't say just do not be afraid of them. Look at the answer for fear. Remember the Lord. The answer for doubt in our life, the answer for fear is to draw closer to the Lord. When you've seen God heal, when you've seen God save, when you've seen God deliver, when you've seen God work, and you remember those things, why is it that in the book of Deuteronomy, that is the instruction to teach, right, the things of God. That's why they put stones and markers to remember what God had done. And so he tells them, remember the Lord. And then it says about him, great and awesome. And fight for your brethren. So he says, you turn your eyes to the Lord, and then you fight. You fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. I want you to notice two things here. One, they were not only fighting for their generation, but for the generations that were behind them. Now, if you are not aware or not, this is an old, old church. One of the oldest churches in the state. I, I cannot find where the two older churches than us ever closed, but it's said that they closed. So, continuously open since 1820. All right? It's a long time. And there have been multiple generations of people come before us. I don't know how many generations, but a lot. There are a lot of churches that started before us or around the same of time of us that are no longer open. We take for granted the Lord's blessing and His longevity in being good to us. But that can all be taken away in one generation. Every church can look at a point and say, man, we really messed this one up. You see, not every church, there's demographics. Or, demographics are not what decides the church's blessing. 
We're literally surrounded by cornfields and a cemetery. We're in one of the least populated counties in the state. One of the poorest counties in the state. The biggest employer in Hamilton County is what? The school and then what? Coal mine. Hamilton County, but yeah, but General Tyler's not in Hamilton County. City, government. None of those are lighting the world on fire here. Right? You go over to Evansville and you see Barry Plastic and you see all these big companies, big factories, these people, all of these things. But what I want you to see is this. The foundation must be laid and the foundation must be cared for. And as a church, there have been people who have came before us who have made sure the foundation didn't crumble. If you're not a lifelong Southern Baptist, you might not know this. But in the 50s and the 60s, the Southern Baptist Convention, the denomination that we are a part of, began to drift very, very far to the left. Pro-abortion, uh, pro uh, uh, the world is billions of years old, uh, women should be in the pulpit. Um, the Bible is not the word of God. That is where we were going, just like every other denomination. And in the 60s, a group of men, pastors, lay people, seminary professors said, this is not the foundation that God can bless. And starting in the 70s, began to mobilize and appoint people and run people for presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention. They began to fire teachers and seminary professors that were liberal, that were more uh, turned the other direction, and began to hire and replace. And by the early 90s, had completely turned our six seminaries from where they were headed to where they are today. And they are not perfect by any means. And they're really drifting back that way again. But those men and women, by the way, said we're going to put our time and our effort and our money and our prayers into something that matters. And they literally rebuilt the foundations that were started in the 1840s when our denomination came home. You say, Jake, it's just not worth the fight. It's just not worth it. It's not worth the effort. What I can promise you is this. If you are not willing to remember God today and to fight for what God is doing and the generations to come, it will not be here. It will not be here. You say, Jake, that depends on us. Absolutely not. But God says, give it to him and do our part. And tonight I ask that about church. And this is where you're going to have to talk whether you like it or not. Because I will call on you individually. Church is no longer important to most people. Let's just be honest tonight. I know this is on video. Someone's going to put an angry face. I don't care. Because what is important to you is where your attention is. When you are hungry, you do what? Most of us eat, right? Or wish we could eat. Maybe that's a better one. When you are thirsty, most of us drink. There is a reason that Jesus talked about being living water and the bread of life. And so 
church does not matter because why? Jesus does not matter. Huh? The heart's not in the right spot. The heart is not in the right spot. Yeah. I understand that there are seasons where we, we have sickness and people have to take care of their grandparents, uh, their parents and they have to work. I understand all of that. I understand that. So that's pretty much what, what Christ was talking to the seven churches in Revelation. Get your act together or your candlestick's going to be removed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so tonight the question is, who is going to stand? Who is going to fight? And I don't mean fight like most Baptists fight, all right? Not amongst ourselves, all right? But fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. You see, tonight we have to make a decision that the Lord makes a difference in the lives of people. That His church matters. That if we do not stand, no one will. No one will. You say, well, somebody will. Maybe God will raise up somebody. But if He's told us to do it, we should do it. And so tonight, what do you see has been the greatest cause of apathy in the church? Not in your life, someone else, someone you don't like. You can use them as an example. What has been the greatest cause of apathy? And do I believe part of it is the fact that churches have grieved the Spirit and have not been the churches that God wants them to be? Absolutely. Right? I, I understand that totally. Um, but I think that the church with a capital C, right, the global church, that God is always building His church. The Bible teaches that, right, that Jesus will build His church doesn't have to be right here, but I believe that God is at work in every community. I believe God is going to be at work in Saline County. I believe God is going to be at work in Hamilton County. I believe God is going to be at work in White County. I believe that. And we should join Him where He's working. I think that is so important. But tonight, what do you see as the greatest threat the church faces? I miss handshake time. So I miss handshake time. So we need to announce. Go shake someone's hand. Hug them. See how it goes. So your son wants, your grandson and son wants us to bring back the offering plates. Jace asked me all the time, when are we going to pass the plates again? I'm like, that's my kind of church member right there. So, <laughs> no. But, uh, yeah. It literally says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Uh, another question I have tonight is... <clears throat> what do you see the greatest difficulty is when fighting for the Lord? What is the de greatest difficulty when fighting for the Lord? For me, it's fighting in the flesh. I don't want to fight in the spirit. I want to fight with the flesh. That's just the honest truth, Right? Pray without ceasing. That's a great verse. Love that verse. I've, I've done my praying. Now I'm going to do my doing. All right? Wait upon the Lord. Oh, I've waited a week. Right? I think that's the biggest struggle is we're not fighting a war here that is against flesh and blood. 
Everything is spiritual warfare. Whether it is uh, false teaching, whether it is an embracing of the things of the world, it is all spiritual warfare. And we have to get back to a place where we really do believe that it's spiritual warfare. And the weapons of our warfare are not those made by hand. And you could read about those in the book of Ephesians, right? We have to believe that. That the answer to the problem is not the things of this world. It's not bigger building. It's not better music. It's not better sermons. It's not friendlier people. All of those things are great and they're wonderful and you ought to do them well. But what we need is the Lord to move. The Lord to work. The Lord to change hearts. The Lord to tear down strongholds. I didn't convict you of your sin. The Spirit of God convicted you of your sin. Begin to draw and work in your heart. That's why Stephen literally told the children of Israel, don't be like your parents. Don't be like your grandparents. Don't, don't, don't refuse the Holy Spirit. Listen, respond. And so tonight I just want you to know that you matter. And some of you have been here a long time. Some of you have not been here a long time. But you have to believe that the people that God sends here are one worth fighting for. Two, the next generation is worth fighting for. And that hopefully in 50 years from now, if the Lord does not come, and I hope that He does, all right, uh, who's the youngest person in here? Tristan, Lucas? Lucas, how old are you? So you'll be 84. So hopefully at 84, Lucas is still wheeling himself in here. Sitting on the front row, getting called on to pray multiple times on Sunday. <laughs> still seeing people saved. Still seeing lives changed. Still seeing God at work. Not sitting on the front row with no teeth, no hair. Boy, I remember the good old days when they brought all them kids in for baptism and ran the front aisle and sat in the floor. Boy, those were the good old days, weren't they? I spent a lot of time in Heritage Woods and Fox Meadows. And that is what I hear the most when those folks talk about their church. I can remember when First Baptist had 500 people sitting down the aisles. Hundreds and hundreds of kids at vacation Bible school. But I can remember those. Guess what the next two words are? Three words. Good old days. I believe you should honor the past and be committed to the future. If you look at the stories from the Old Testament, there's always a conflict with each of the characters in that. If you look through church history, the church, church is strongest when there's a conflict that holds the church together to work against. When, when there's a perception that is conquered, that's when we're at our weakest. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it, and it's God that puts those, you know, those diversions in our path. It's not the way we would design it. And God's got a grander plan. You know, if you look at the life of Joseph, Joseph would not have planned to get thrown in a pit and sold to go to Egypt and then, you know, be falsely accused and put in prison. And, you know, there, but each one of those things, God had a purpose to develop Joseph into being somebody that could lead the whole 
you know, the whole country of Egypt, plus save the whole region from famine. Yeah. And I think even in a, in a modern non-church context, I think we're seeing that now with the invasion of Ukraine. Now, I'm not going to give you my thoughts on the invasion of Ukraine because there's a lot there, all right? But what I am going to tell you is this. I do not believe that crazy man thought that anybody would care, that everybody was complacent, that everybody had grown fat and sassy on the vine, and he would march right through Ukraine and do what he wanted to do. Uh, I still wish they'd figure out what Biden and his family was doing over there before they destroy everything. That's a whole other conversation. But literally, and it's not been that way, right? You have people like Germany and France and these countries that had become uh, limp-wristed liberals that had no backbone have somewhat of a backbone. Well, they, what? Saw, they saw what's future was coming towards that. Absolutely. It's like, you know, build up that, build up that wall or you're going to be the next country. Yeah. And I keep telling myself. Well, we don't have enough money to build a wall here. We send money so they can protect their borders. I love that. There are so many things I want to say about that, too. I know. I'm tempting you. But I ask this question. What will it finally take for this church and churches in general to wake up? I thought it would be gay marriage. I thought when that came down the pipe, this will be it. The church turned a blind eye when it came to divorce. They've turned a blind eye when it comes to premarital sex. We've turned a blind eye to pornography. But homosexual, that has to be it. Most churches have just rolled over. Just rolled over. Then I thought, man, it's got to be the transgender issue, right? Even the most liberal people can, cannot understand. You can't argue with the fact that God makes a male and female. It's not possible. Christian people, literally. That's how the book starts, right? Pretty simple. No. No. And I thought, man, I tell you what. Abortion, that's going to be it. This is going to be the issue. The murder of unborn children in the womb. That's it. This is what is going to mobilize the church. But what I can tell you is most of the church is still where they were. And that's what breaks my heart. The, the, the idea that it's just been a month ago that we had a Supreme Court justice nominee that could not define what a woman was, to now everybody's screaming for the rights of the women that they can't define is the ultimate irony to me at least. You know, It's like they have no idea their compass is spinning. Yeah. I don't know which idea which direction they're headed. Yeah. And what bothers me the most is not that the world believes that, because as Paul said, we should expect the world to be the world. But it's yeah, the church. It's designed to do. Yeah. Paul said, I did not tell you to stay away from the sexually immoral of the world, but those who call themselves believers. That's where the real struggle is. When the head of the Episcopalian church comes out and says, it doesn't really matter. It's like, what? Or even the Catholic church. Well, it doesn't matter if Joe Biden takes communion. In your religion, it does. It's a big deal. And so the fact that we see all of this going on. So my challenge for you tonight as we close is even when no one else will stand, and even when else grows weary, don't abandon your post.